Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter, Do Death. Hi, Phoebe. How are you? Hi, Dad. I'm all right. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. This is episode 52. Can you believe that? No. I always say that every week. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got quite a story for you tonight. One one of those ones which probably a lot of people will have heard the name uh, before, but maybe not know the details, because okay. it happened sort of 50-ish years ago. I've learned a lot by reading up about this, this particular story. Yeah. So this week, Phoebe, I'm going to tell you about Mary Bell. Okay. And... Yeah, full disclosure, pretty much this entire story is uh, straight from Wikipedia. So if anybody was to look it up, you'd probably find uh, what I'm going to be telling you would work. But it's a really good, concise uh, explanation about what happened and the story behind Mary Bell and what happened to her subsequently. Um, And I think Wikipedia is... is as good a source as any in a lot of ways so yeah yeah I mean there are countless books and lots of videos and things about Mary Bell as well because uh, it's a it's a big case of its time Mary Flora Bell was born on the 26th of May 1957 in Corbridge Northumberland Bell's mother Elizabeth or Betty Bell whose maiden name was Muck Cricket was a well-known local prostitute who was often absent from the family home. Mary was in actual fact her second child, and she was born when Betty herself was only 17 years old. So she had an older sibling. So Betty must have been really quite young. Yeah. When Betty went absent, she would quite often just leave the children at home on their own, even at a really young age. I don't know how much older the, uh, the older sibling was but uh she was coming that much older no I wouldn't have thought so no <laughs> she would just leave them on their own or sometimes if he was around with their father oh wow okay now the identity of mary's biological father is in actual fact unknown uh, for most of her life mary believed her father to be william or billy bell a violent Bell. alcoholic yeah billy oh, nice bell. <laughs> A violent alcoholic, habitual criminal, and with an arrest record for crimes, including armed robbery. However, she was only a little baby when William Bell married Elizabeth, so it's unknown whether or not he's the actual biological father or not. If she was a prostitute, who knows? Well. Mary was an unwanted and neglected child right from the very beginning. According to her, her aunt, Isa McCricket, Within minutes of Mary's birth, her mother had resented hospital staff attempting to place her in her arms, shouting, take that thing away from me. Oh, dear. As a baby, as a toddler and as a young child, Mary frequently suffered injuries in household accidents while alone with her mother, which led her family to believe that either her mother was deliberately neglecting her or intentionally attempting to harm or even kill her. Oh, my God. On one occasion, in around about 1960, so Mary would have only been like two or three, Betty dropped her from the first floor window. 
Oh my on another God. occasion, yep. On another occasion, she gave her sleeping pills. She is also known to have once sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have children of her own. Jesus. And that resulted in her older sister, Catherine, having to travel across Newcastle on her own to reclaim Mary from this individual and return Mary back to the home on White House Road. Yeah, crazy start to life. Despite the negligence and abuse of her child, Betty refused repeated offers from her family to take custody of Mary. So, you know, the aunt or even her own mother, I guess, might have said, look, you're clearly not coping. You don't really want Mary. Let's look after her for you. It's alleged that when Betty brought clients to the house, she allowed them to abuse Mary. Oh, my God. Presumably for money. And that is similar to what happened in the case of Fred and Rose West about 20 years later to a certain extent, isn't it, where uh, Mm. one or two of the children were um, offered to clients. Both at home and at school, Mary exhibited numerous signs of disturbed and unpredictable behaviour. Not surprised. Well, yeah, (laughs) including sudden mood swings and chronic bedwetting. Red flag. Coming together, yeah. (laughs) She is known to have frequently fought with other children, both boys and girls, and to have attempted to strangle or suffocate her classmates Jeez. on several occasions. This violent behaviour made many children reluctant to socialise with Mary, who would frequently spend her free time with Norma Joyce Bell, who was born in 1955, the daughter of the next-door neighbour. Now, although their surnames are both Bell... They are in no way related to each other. According to one of the classmates at the junior school that uh, both the girls went to, by 1968, she and her peers had been accustomed to the sudden and marked changes in Mary's behaviour. They could tell because she would start shaking her head and forming a steely glaze, and her peers instinctively knew that she was about to become violent. Oh, my God. And the focus of her stare usually was the person that she would then go on to attack. So I suppose she was sort of like, I don't know, sent into some sort of rage and there would be physical signs of that that the other children got to know. It's terrifying. On Saturday the 11th of May, 1968, so she's just not quite 11. Mm -hmm. She's coming up to 11th birthday. A three-year-old boy was discovered wandering dazed and bleeding in the vicinity of St Margaret's Road in Scotswood. The child later informed police that he had been playing with Mary and Norma on top of a disused air raid shelter when one of the girls, and they don't know which one, had pushed him off the side of it, seven feet to the ground, giving him a severe cut to his head. No. I remember playing on the roof of an old air raid shelter. <laughs> it used to be one at the sort of at the bottom of the garden because in the house that I used to live in when I was a kid in Greenford, the house was right next door to a school. Oh, okay. Literally next door to a school. And right next to the fence at the bottom of the garden, there was an air raid shelter, an old air raid shelter. Oh, okay. It was like an above ground one, but it was, I suppose it would have been wherever kids would have gone yeah. in the war if the sirens had gone off. 
I think it was used as like storage or whatever, but it just had this big flat roof. It was quite big. So you used to be able to climb up the fence and just get onto the roof of this thing. You <laughs> spent ages up there. Anyway, the same evening, the parents of three small girls contacted police to complain that Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their children as they were playing. Oh my God. That evening, both Mary and Norma were interviewed about these incidents. Both of them denied any culpability for the air raid shelter incident, claiming they had simply discovered the boy bleeding heavily from a head wound. When they were asked about the attempted strangulation of the three young girls, Mary denied any knowledge of the incident. However, Norma admitted that Mary had tried to throttle each of the girls, stating, Mary went to one of the girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both her hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up and Mary did the same thing to her. Police notified the local authority of the incidents and of Mary's violent nature, but due to their age, well, Mary was only like 10 still at this time. Both of the girls are simply given a warning and no further action was taken. So that was on the 11th of May. It wasn't very long after that that their behaviour took a very dangerous turn. Just a bit of background about the area in which they were living. This was a very poor area of Newcastle on time, but it was experienced sort of um, some urban renewal work, shall we say. A lot of the original roads in, around, in and around Scotswood were sort of Victorian terrace back-to-backs, sort of um, what right. you might refer to as slums, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, very cramped, very old, not very pleasant to live in. So there was this programme going on, and a lot of these houses were being demolished to make way for modern houses, and the big trend in the sort of 60s was to build high-rise flats i mean all know right. how well they turned out yeah <laughs> for all sorts nice. of reasons <laughs> yep <laughs> but at the time they were you know they were desirable to people leaving wow. these drafty cold damp victorian slums to go and live in a nice modern flat but yeah. i think nowadays <laughs> you'd, you'd choose the victorian around. house wouldn't you yeah yeah and do the drafty old victorian house yeah so as a result of all this demolition um and the houses being sort of earmarked for demolition, children would often play sort of in and around the derelict houses. Okay. And where they had already been demolished, there'd be vast expanses of sort of wasteland, really, where the houses once stood, so it would just be rubble and mud and dust and stuff. And one of these large expanses of waste ground was located to a railway line, and the children used to call it Tin Lizzie. Okay. Not quite sure why. <laughs> but um, it was um, yeah, quite a large expanse of this waste ground that was next to St. Margaret's Road. On Saturday the 25th of May, so only a couple of weeks after the incident with the three girls and the boy on the air raid shelter, mm-hmm. uh, and indeed the day before Mary's 11th birthday. birthday, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom of one of these derelict houses at 85 St. Margaret's Road. Okay. She is believed to have committed this crime alone. 
Martin's body was discovered by three children at about half past three in the afternoon. He was lying on his back with his arms stretched above his head. Apart from specks of blood and foam around his mouth, no signs of violence were visible on him. Now, a local workman called John Hall soon arrived at the scene and he attempted to perform CPR, but it was unsuccessful. And as uh, Mr. Hall was attempting CPR, two of the local girls, 10-year-old Mary Bell and her 13-year-old friend, Norma Bell, appeared at the doorway of this upstairs room in his derelict house. Both of them were quickly shooed out of the house, but the two of them went round to Martin's aunt, Mrs. Rita Finley, and informed her, one of your sister's bands has just had an accident. We think it's Martin, but we can't tell because there's blood all over him. Okay. Strange behaviour. The next day, a post-mortem was carried out on the little body of Martin Brown. The pathologist was unable to find any signs of violence on the child's body and was unable to determine the cause of death, although he was able to discount the investigator's theory that the child had died of poisoning through ingesting tablets. I suppose that's what they might have thought okay. from the foam around his mouth. It became evident later that he had been strangled, but why he couldn't tell yeah. immediately is, is a bit strange. But um, There we go. But as a result of not being able to identify a cause of death, the inquest on the 7th of June returned an open verdict. Mm -hmm. Now, the next day after the death of Martin happened, so on Sunday, the 26th of May, which was Mary's 11th birthday, she and her accomplice, Norma, broke into a children's nursery in nearby Woodland Crescent. My God. The two managed to get in by taking tiles off the roof. Jeez. <laughs> uh, and they started to vandalise the place. They tore up books, upturned desks and smeared ink and poster paints about the, all about the place before they mm -hmm. escaped. The next day, staff discovered the break-in and the, uh, the mess had been called and immediately notified the police, who discovered four separate notes which claimed responsibility for Martin Brown's murder. Now, these notes are bizarre, and there's pictures of them on the internet, and the spelling's not great, and they're pretty incoherent. The first note said, I murder so that I may come back. Okay. And these are all written in very childish writing. Mm -hmm. Another one wrote, We did murder Martin Brown. F off, you bastard. Oh, my God. <laughs> he didn't put F. He put the word. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a third note simply read, F off, we murder. Watch out, Fanny and faggot. Oh, my God. And the final note was really quite bizarre. You are mice. Why? Because, B-E-C-U-R-S-E, -E, because, we murdered Martin. Go, Brown. You better look out. There are murders about by Fanny and old faggot you screws. Jeez. <laughs> it don't wow. make any sense at all, really. But um, There's so much wrong there. <laughs> there's so much wrong. Yeah. Uh, disturbing. But the police dismissed this incident as a tasteless and childish prank. Oh, please. Two days later, on the 29th of May, just before the funeral of Martin Brown, 
Both of the girls called at the house of his mother, June Brown, asking to see her son. And when she replied, when the mother replied that they couldn't see her son because he was no longer with them, Mary replied, oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Very disturbed. Yeah, like very, very what? Yeah. I was like, what happened to her for her to be like this? But we heard what happened to her. Yeah, like she was thrown out of windows. She was yeah. given drugs. She was sexually abused. She was yeah. neglected. On the afternoon of the thirty first of July, nineteen sixty eight, a three year old named Brian Howe was last seen by his parents in the street outside his house, playing with one of his siblings, the family dog, and Mary and Norma. <laughs> When he didn't return home that afternoon, concerned relatives and neighbours searched the streets without success. And it wasn't until late that night, at about 10 past 11, a search party discovered Brian's body on the tin, Lizzie, on this stretch of derelict land, uh, sort of hidden between two large concrete blocks. The first policeman to arrive on the scene observed that A deliberate but feeble attempt had been made to conceal the body, which was covered in clumps of grass and weeds. It was obvious that cyanosis, which is where skin starts to look blue due to a lack of oxygen, Mm -hmm. was evident on the child's lips. And several bruises and scratches were found on his neck. And a pair of broken scissors lay close by to the body. Wow, okay. Now, the coroner would conclude that Brian had died of strangulation in this case, uh, and that he'd been dead for about seven, seven and a half hours before the discovery of his body. Wow, okay. So it was 11 o'clock at night when he was found, so it could have been like four o'clock that afternoon, I suppose, mm-hmm. when, he was, when he was killed. This is July, so the, you know, it was probably light, well late into the evening yeah. by then. The killer had evidently squeezed Brian's nostrils closed with one hand, well, whoever did the murder <laughs> gripped his throat with the other. Um, now, there were numerous puncture marks all over his legs, which they know were caused before he died. Okay. Uh, sections of his hair had been cut from his head and a crude attempt had been made to carve the letter M into his stomach. Oh, wow, OK. And the coroner determined that it was quite a small amount of force had been used to kill the child. And as a result, he concluded that it was, in fact, another child. Right, okay. Further examination of his body and his clothing found numerous grey and maroon fibres. They were found on the clothes he was wearing and on his shoes. And these fibres didn't come from any source any clothing or any other fabric from within brian's house okay so the discovery of brian house body starts a large-scale manhunt over 100 detectives from across northumberland were assigned to the investigation and more than 1200 children have been questioned with regard to their whereabouts on that day mary and norma were questioned on the 1st of august Witnesses had already informed police that they'd seen the two girls playing with Brian shortly before he was believed to have died, so that that afternoon. Now, in her initial interview, Norma seemed excitable and sort of keen to talk. 
whereas Mary was much more reserved, much more subdued. Mm-hmm. Both girls were evasive and contradictory in their initial statements, but they freely admitted to having been playing with Brian on that day, but denied having seen him after lunchtime. Okay. Mary was questioned further, and she stated that she remembered seeing an eight-year-old local boy playing with Brian on the afternoon of the 31st of July, and that she had seen this bigger lad hitting Brian. Okay. Furthermore, she stated that she also remembered that the boy had been covered in grass and weeds as if he'd been rolling in a field, and that he had in his possession a small pair of scissors. Mary then added, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them. One leg of the scissors was broken or bent. Now, this sort of attracted the attention of the police because only the police by that stage knew that there were scissors that were found and the fact that they were broken. Okay. So that made them even more suspicious about Mary that she knew that. But I was thinking, well, if she genuinely had seen someone wielding a broken pair of scissors, then she would know, wouldn't she? Yeah. (laughs) That's not necessarily incriminating at all, but anyway. But I guess if no one else had mentioned the scissors. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they found broken scissors near the body and they found these stub wounds in his legs, which I think they knew were caused by the scissors. And for her to mention it. I mean, if if none of the other kind of 1,200 children that they'd interviewed (laughs) had mentioned it. Yeah. Anyway, the boy that she referred to was was questioned, but he was discovered to have been at Newcastle Airport on the afternoon of the 31st of July with his parents, and there were numerous witnesses able to corroborate this. I think they'd gone just to watch the planes rather than actually jetting off somewhere, but uh, yeah, he was definitely nowhere around that afternoon. A couple of days later, on the 4th of August, the parents of Norma Bell contacted police stating that their daughter wished to confess what she knew about the death of Brian Howe. Detective Chief Inspector Dobson arrived at their home and formally cautioned Norma and asked her what she knew. Norma informed DCI Dobson that Mary had taken her to a spot on the Tin Lizzie where she had been shown Brian's body. (laughs) Mary had then demonstrated to Norma how she had strangled Brian. According to Norma, Mary had confessed to her that she had enjoyed strangling the child before describing how she had inflicted the marks to his stomach with a razor blade, which had then been hidden at the crime scene. And the broken scissors. Norma then led police to the scene and showed them where the razor blade was hidden. Wow. Which is what they found. And a drawing that Norma made of the wounds on the boy's stomach precisely matched those recorded by the coroner. Jeez. The police went round to see Mary Bell at her home in the early hours of the 5th of August. On this occasion, she was very defensive when confronted with the discrepancies in her previous statement, and she informed detectives, you're trying to brainwash me, I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. Now, later the same day, Norma was questioned again. And on this occasion, she made a full statement in which she admitted to actually being present when Mary had strangled Brian. Oh, God. According to Norma, when the three of them were alone on the tin, Lizzie, Mary seemed to go all funny, pushing the child onto the grass and attempting to strangle him before stating to her, my hands are getting thick, take over. 
Norma then ran away from the scene, leaving Mary alone with Brian. And a forensic examination of clothing from both the girls revealed that the grey fibres discovered on Brian's body were a match to a woollen dress that Mary often wore. And the maroon fibres that were found on Brian's shoes were a match to a skirt that Norma often wore. Oh, wow. And furthermore, the same grey fibres had also been found on the body of Martin Brown, the first victim. Mm. Now, Brian Howe was buried at a local cemetery on the 7th of August 1968 in a ceremony attended by over 200 people. According to DCI Dobson, who had planned to arrest both of the girls later that day, Mary stood outside the Howe household as the coffin was being brought out from the house. Uh, And he stated that she stood there laughing and rubbing her hands. He's quoted as saying, I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one. Yeah. (laughs) Both both girls were formally charged with the murder of Brian Howe at 8pm that evening. And in response to this charge, Mary replied, that's all right by me. But Norma burst into tears, shouting, I never... I'll pay you back for this. Oh, wow. And in the presence of an independent witness, Mary prepared a written statement in which she admitted to being present when Brian Howe was murdered, but insisting the murder had been committed by Norma. She also admitted that she and Norma broke into the nursery the day after the murder of Martin, defacing the property before the two had written the four notes. Jeez. So both the girls underwent psychological evaluations. The results of these tests revealed that Norma was intellectually delayed, who basically had a sort of a learning age of below her years, and a submissive character who easily displayed emotion, whereas Mary was a bright yet cunning character prone to sudden mood swings. Occasionally, Mary was willing to talk, although she rapidly became sullen, introspective and defensive in nature. Okay. The four psychiatrists who examined Mary concluded that although she wasn't suffering from a specific mental disorder, she suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder. In his official report compiled for the Director of Public Prosecutions, Dr. David Westbury concluded Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, ingratiation, manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight or violence. Wow, okay. A disturbed 11-year-old. Yeah, really disturbed. Basically, they've both now been arrested. They've both been evaluated and everything. The next thing to happen was the trial. So the trial of Mary Bell and Norma Bell for the murders of Martin Brown and Brian Howe began at Newcastle Assizes on the 5th of December, 1968. Very quickly then. Yeah, pretty quickly, yeah. I thought, I'm going to look up what Assizes actually means because I'm not really sure we've we've heard that term before. Mm. And and Assizes were... They were like travelling courts, basically. Oh, okay. So a court would, um, wouldn't would be resident in any one city. It would move around from city to city, setting up a courtroom in sort of like the town hall or something like that to do a few trials and then move right. on to the next one. That must be quite inefficient, really, because yeah. <laughs> you've got a lot of people that need 
trials, then uh, you might have to wait a long time. Yeah. Even though we see in this case, it all happened very quickly. Yeah. Um, but the whole arrangement of the sizes was abolished in 1972. When, oh, they okay. were, they, when they were replaced by permanent crown courts that uh, sort of most cities and large towns have. Yeah. Both the girls were tried before Mr. Justice Ralph Cusack and both pleaded not guilty. On the first day of the trial, Cusack waived the defendant's right to anonymity on account of their age, which is interesting, yeah, because um, I would have thought i mean these days <laughs> you'd say yeah they, they're, they're, they're not being disclosed for legal reasons wouldn't you if it was anybody mm. under 16 or 18 yeah. or whatever it is but these girls were like 11 30 yeah but as a result the media were allowed to publicize the names the ages photographs of both the girls wow. in court they sat alongside plain clothed female police officers in the center of the room sort of behind their legal representatives and very close to their families. Rudolph Lyons QC opened the case on behalf of the prosecution. In an opening statement, which lasted six hours, <laughs> Lyons informed the jury that they faced an unhappy and distressing task due to the nature of the murders and the ages of the defendants. He then outlined the prosecution's intention to illustrate the similarities between both the murders which indicated that both boys had been murdered by the same perpetrator or perpetrators. Lyons outlined the circumstances surrounding both deaths and the evidence indicating the defendant's guilt. Now, although Lyons conceded in his opening statement that despite the defendant's age difference, Mary was the more dominant of the two. He contended that both girls had acted in unison and were equally culpable killing both children solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder. And he added that both girls knew well what they were doing and that it was wrong and what the results would be. Wow. It's a pretty horrible story, isn't it? It is really, yeah. It's child on child. Slightly less bad than if it was an adult or... Yeah. Hmm. It's just like, God, like, what... Even everything that happened to her, like, there must be other children that have things like that happen to them in their childhood that don't do this. <laughs> Yeah. You don't really hear of children or even grown-ups doing things like this when they've come from nurturing, nice, secure stable, secure yeah. backgrounds. Yeah. On the fifth day of the trial, Norma testified in her own defence, which, I mean, today, I, think, I don't know. I mean, this is like, these are 11 and 13-year-old girls yeah. on trial in a proper court. For murder. <laughs> for murder, yeah. It's, it's, and testifying in your own defence. Jeez. I mean, 1968 doesn't seem that long ago to no. me. <laughs> within my lifetime. But, yeah, it seems uh, things have moved on a lot in that respect. Yeah. Anyway, she denied any culpability in the actual murder of either child, but admitted under cross-examination to having known of Mary's violence and her history of attacking children. And that the two had discussed attacking and killing small children, both boys and girls. Jesus. When she was questioned as to whether or not Mary had demonstrated to her how children should be killed, Norma nodded. Then she conceded that as Mary had begun to attack and strangle Brian Howe, she had failed to alert a group of boys playing in the vicinity 
stating that she had failed to do so as I did not know what was going to happen in the first place. She had stopped hurting him for a bit when the boys were near the concrete blocks. Questioned as to her own role in the murder, Norma stated that she had never touched the child. Following the conclusion of Norma's testimony on the 12th of December, Mary testified in her own defence, and her testimony lasted for almost four hours. Wow. She denied Norma's accusations, insisting that although she had observed the body of Martin Brown at St Margaret's Road, she herself had never harmed the child, and that she and Norma had later asked the boy's mother to view the body as the two were daring each other and one of us did not want to be a chicken. Okay. <laughs> Mary also conceded she had divulged to others her knowledge of Martin's death could get Norma put straight away. Wow. Mm. Is this nice really friend. weird, like, contrast between them obviously being children and calling each other chicken and writing those notes and stuff like that, yeah. but then doing these really adult things, these really, really yeah. you know, brutal murders really that yeah. are really adult <laughs> and, and and kind of thought through to a certain extent yeah. or you know they didn't just admit to it they were very both very much denying it yeah which at that age would have taken some doing i would have thought yeah when mary was questioned about the death of brian howe mary claimed that norma had been the individual who had strangled him as she herself was just standing and looking. I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down. Mary then alleged Norma had encouraged Brian to lie down if he wanted some sweets, telling him, you've got to lie down for the lady to come with the sweets, before proceeding to strangle him with her bare hands, as she herself unsuccessfully attempted to prevent the attack. (laughs) So Mary's now saying that she tried to stop Norma from doing it. Mary further stated she could determine the level of force Norma had exhibited because her fingertips and nails were going white. And again, she admitted that she had failed to inform the authorities of her knowledge of Norma's actions out of both fear and a misguided sense of loyalty. Okay. So who do you believe? Well. (laughs) They're both saying it was the other one. Mm. He had an M on his tummy, though, didn't he? So, yeah, yeah. Well, Norma might have done that to frame. That's Mary. true. But not, but Mary's the one that knew about the scissors. I feel like they were both definitely involved. <laughs> I think they probably were. Yeah. Well, we'll find out in a minute. Now, Norma's mother then testified that several months before the murder of Brian Howe. She and her husband had discovered Mary attempting to strangle Norma's younger sister. My God. And that she only released her grip after her husband had punched Mary on the shoulder. Oh, my God. So that's um, disturbing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why would you carry on doing it if you knew there are adults watching you watching and then a man doing? is thumping yeah. you to get you to... She she must have been just Jeez. crazed, almost. Yeah, like possessed um, or Possessed, that's, yeah, possessed, exactly that, yeah, by something. Yeah. 
No, like in like horror films with children when all of a sudden they just get like really creepy and yeah. do it. It's like in the butterfly effect when he like um when he's doing that picture and then mm. when he goes back again again he goes and slams his hand on the, his hands on those um yeah nails spikes sticking up to get spikes, those, like, yeah. scars on his hands and stuff yeah like that sort of totally Possession. yeah yeah completely yeah. lost in the lost in it yeah yeah just so, in like yeah. rage yeah. a proper like cloud like red cloud sort of thing. Going back to the trial, a child psychiatrist then testified that Norma's mental age was eight years and ten months, even though she's okay. actually 13, and that although her capacity of knowing right from wrong was limited, she would have been capable of appreciating how yeah. bad and how criminal these acts were that she was either being accused of committing or witnessing or at least being aware of. So then came the closing arguments. On the 13th of December, Norma's defence counsel delivered his closing statement to the jury. He emphasised that although both girls were on trial together, there was no real evidence that existed against Norma. Mm. And the only evidence against Norma was Mary's accusations against her. Apart from the fact and that I guess the fibres. Red fibres, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so must have that that sounds like pretty concrete evidence to me. <laughs> yeah. Her defence implored the jurors to suppress feelings of outrage and malice and dispel any idea that both little girls pay for the actions of just one of them. Yeah, because they both had their own independent defence, and so he was, yeah, he was putting the case forward for Norma. Harvey Robson then delivered his closing argument on behalf of Mary. Robson illustrated her broken background and dysfunctional family and the blur between fantasy and reality in her mind. Yeah. Referring to the notes that both girls left behind at the nursery, Robson stated that they had proved the crimes of a childish fantasy and in Mary's case were written to attract attention to herself. In his closing argument, Rudolf Lyons described the case as a macabre and grotesque one in which Mary, clearly the more domineering of the two, despite being of a younger age, wielded a very compelling influence reminiscent of the fictional Svengali over Norma, who he conceded was of subnormal intelligence, stating... I forecast to you that the younger girl, although two years and two months younger than the other, was nevertheless the cleverer and more dominating personality. Outlining the numerous lies Mary had told the police and court alike, Lyons further remarked of Mary's lack of remorse and her high degree of cunning. So in total, the trial lasted for nine days. On the 17th of December, the jury retired to consider their verdict. But within three hours and 25 minutes, they were back. It's quite quick. Mary Bell was cleared of murder, but convicted of manslaughter of both the boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Norma Bell was acquitted of all charges. That's interesting. On hearing the jury's verdicts, Norma clapped her hands in excitement, whereas Mary burst into tears and her mother and grandmother also wept. Passing sentence, Judge Cusack described Mary Bell as a dangerous individual, adding she posed a very grave risk to other children and that steps must be taken to protect the public from her. 
she was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which is, in effect, an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. So uh, Mary Bell was initially detained at the Durham Remand Home before being transferred to a second remand home in South Norwood, which is in um, like South London, which yeah, is a yeah. long way from Newcastle. It is, yeah. She was then I guess trans- her mum probably wasn't that bothered about this. <laughs> well, no. She was then transferred to Red Bank Secure Unit, a young offenders institution in Newton Le Willows, Merseyside, where she was the only female amongst approximately 24 inmates. Jeez. So you can imagine it wasn't long before Mary Bell claimed that she was being sexually abused by staff members yeah. and other inmates. In November 1973, she's 16 by this time, she was transferred to a secure wing of uh, Her Majesty's Prison Style in Cheshire. Uh, They've been around a bit, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And while she was there, she unsuccessfully applied for parole. So she'd only been in prison for like three years by that stage, really, yeah. didn't she? In June 1976, Bell was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison where she undertook a secretarial course. And in September 77, she again made national headlines when she and another inmate, Annette Priest, escaped from the open prison. Oh, my God. Both both of them went to Blackpool, where they spent several days in the company of two young men, visiting oh, wow. the amusements and sleeping in various local hotels, Jeez. where Bell used the alias Mary Robinson before the two party company from each other and mary bell was arrested at the derbyshire home of one of the men having by this stage dyed her hair blonde in an effort to disguise her identity she was returned to custody that evening uh, and priest was arrested in leeds a few days later and bell's penalty for absconding was the loss of prison privileges for 28 days oh wow okay (laughs) (laughs) and i suppose it wasn't open prison but even so in June 1979, the Home Office announced that they would transfer Mary Bell to HM Prison Ascombe Grange, an open category prison in the village of Ascombe Richard. In Yuck. efforts to prepare, yeah, in, in efforts to prepare her for her eventual release, which was planned for 1980, the following year. Uh, so in November 79, she started working as a secretary, then at a waitress at the cafe in York Minster. Anyway. Uh, while she was undergoing supervision in preparation for her eventual release. Uh, Mary Bell was released from prison in May 1980 at the age of 23, having served about 11 and a half years in custody. She was granted anonymity and given a new name, allowing her to start a new life elsewhere in the country. And upon her release, the spokesman is quoted as saying, Mary Bell wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and to be left alone. My God. Four years later, in uh, May 1984, Belle gave birth to a daughter. And this was her only child that she's, she's had. Her daughter knew nothing of her mother's past until 1998. So oh, wow. Then, when reporters discovered Belle's then current location in a resort town on the Sussex coast. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was uh, Hastings, Brighton. Yeah. Um, Eastbourne, somewhere along there. I don't know where both had been living for approximately 18 months at that stage, and the media revelation forced Belle and her 14-year-old daughter to leave that home and to be taken into a safe house by undercover officers. 
Uh, and then they were both relocated to another part of the United Kingdom. Apparently, Mary Bell, or whatever her name is now, has allegedly returned to Tyneside on several occasions in the years following her release, and she may have even lived in that uh, wow. location for a, a while. Now, the right to anonymity was granted to Mary Bell's daughter for only the first 18 years of her life. Oh, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But on the 21st of May, 2003, um, Mary Bell, or whatever her name was, won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. Okay. And the order was approved by Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss uh, and was later updated to include Bell's granddaughter, who was born in 2009. Wow. He's referred to as Zed. The order also prohibits the divulging of any aspects of their lives which may identify them. Wow. She did collaborate with an author to provide an account of her life before and after the crimes um, in a book by Gita Serini called Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell. And within that book, she describes details of the abuse she suffered as a child at the hands of her prostitute mother mm. and at the hands of several of her mother's clients. She's 64 now. I'm assuming still alive. Yeah, well, I presume so. Her anonymity is still protected by the 2003 High Court order. Uh, and according to this sort of ghost-written book, Bell does not claim that she was wrongly convicted and freely admits the abuse she suffered as a child does not excuse her crimes. Wow. So that is the story of Mary Bell. Norma Bell died in 1989. Not much is known about her, to be Probably honest. Probably very old. No, she was 50, 1955 to 1989. So um, 34. Yeah. Wow. There we go. Wow. That is the, um, yeah, disturbing, harrowing. Yeah. I'm surprised that she got let out of prison. <laughs> like, I feel like she, they would have kept her there forever. But So, yeah, I she was by 11 when she went in and 23 yeah. when she came out. So, yeah. It was like her life again, wasn't it, spent in prison? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, but getting out at 23 is ample time to start over i guess it is but then even that even that that trauma of being in prison and moved around and yeah living that institutionalized life for 12 years must have had an impact on her but i'm assuming we'd probably know if she'd um i think so yeah, again. That. yeah if she had and then i'm sure it wouldn't take long before that became known wow but yeah well, maybe the trauma of her early life had been Espunged by her time in prison, although yeah, as you say, in, that in its own right, it, it wasn't a, a settled period by any means, was it? She no. just moved around. She was uh, abused. herself abused. Yeah, she More. escaped. <laughs> mm. So there are some photographs of Mary Bell. There's pictures of like sort of um, the the houses mm. and the sort of the area at the time and things. So I can, okay. Uh, put those on and that's it really then cool well thank you did you say you put some photos on social media 
I will. I'll put uh, some photographs on our Instagram page. At Dad and Daughter Do Death. And on our Facebook. Dad and Daughter Do Death. And if you'd like to contact us to talk about this story or any of the others that we've done, you can always email us. Dad and Daughter Do Death at gmail.com. So thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you found this episode interesting. If it's the first time you've listened, there's uh, 51 other episodes for you to go and uh, plow your way through. If you would like to, we'd really appreciate any kind of likes, comments, shares, subscriptions and, and your thoughts. Let us know what you think. Yes, please do. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next time when once again, Dad and Daughter do death.